Okay, Revelation chapter 21, part two. I think there's part three coming. It, it is it, it is a lot, but it's a it is a wonderful section of scripture, folks. Let me just say it this way: This is where you're going to live someday. And if you want somebody to walk you through it before you ever buy it, so to speak, we say, well, what's that look like? What's that look like? The Lord is kind to us, and he gives us a description here. And I have to confess, even with studying it, it just is beyond me. It's beyond me to try to picture this. I I might get out a box of crayons and try to color a picture for you, and it still will be so inferior to what you're going to see. I am your tour guide, and I've never been there. So uh, we just trust God's Word. We read it. We try not to use uh, um, extraordinary imagination and try to make it something it's not. Let's just take it for what He says. And let's do that today as we study through chapter number 21. We're going to talk about the New Jerusalem today. And there are several sections in here. It actually spills into chapter 22, which we will not cover right now. But we will deal with this in chapter number 21. I'm just going to read the uh, first and second verse. And then we're going to actually go into verse 10 and carry that through most of the chapter. But just verse 1 and 2 to get us started. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Heavenly Father, help us today. We are walking through a section of scripture that is both fascinating and yet beyond us. And yet these things are true. For you have said so. We anticipate someday when we see this place, we'll say, yes, that's the way he described it to us. And uh, what joy that will be. We know, Lord, we know in our hearts that trusting you will never lead to disappointment. And we need that in our life today. But we also need that in our hopes for tomorrow. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you might lift up our hearts today because we're studying your word. And may it bless us, each and every one. Encourage us and draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a happy theme. I like being in happy themes. We don't get them too often in the book of Revelation. Obviously, we've come a long ways into this. But we're now in the last two chapters that speak about our future home with the Lord. And I am trying to be very careful presenting this to you as it is written, as it is written, without assumptions that really do dominate uh, eschatology in terms today. People write books on heaven all the time. I'm I'm part of that group now. I've written one on heaven too. And um, there are all kinds of Modern techniques in reinterpreting words, uh, following after theological bents and all these other things. That I want to avoid man's opinion and just give you what God said. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, I teach that there is ample evidence, I believe, that the present heaven 
and the present earth, the one you're living on right now, will one day be destroyed. We have that, and I've talked about that. Uh, it will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. And you may say, well, why are you pouncing on that again if you've already said it? Well, as you saw, verse number one, it gets right to that point. But so many commentators I have researched, um, and it's just amazing to me, the more I pull off my shelf, the more I read that they do not think God intends to do this literally. This literal new heaven or a literal new earth. Uh, but they present this idea that it's just going to be remade. The one you're on right now, it's going to be remodeled. I'm going to use all kinds of interesting words. They, they haven't come up with the best word yet, but they use ideas like refurbished, basically clean up the old one, make it better. Um, I'll just illustrate this for you real simply. This is from a rather respectable commentary, and again, I'm not here to just blast people or anything, but this is the way it wrote, and this is what I see when I pick up my books. God originally created the earth and heaven to be man's permanent home, but sin and death entered the world and transformed the earth into a place of rebellion and alienation. It became enemy-occupied territory, but God has been working in salvation history to effect a total reversal of this evil consequence and to liberate earth and heaven from bondage to sin and corruption. John's emphasis on heaven and earth is not primarily cosmological, but moral and spiritual. And then I skip a little bit and I keep going. The heaven and the earth are new because of the presence of a new community of people who are loyal to God and the Lamb in contrast to the former earth in which a community of idolaters lived. The sea, the source of the satanic beast, from chapter 13, verse 1, and the place of the dead, in chapter 20, verse 13, will be gone. Again, the emphasis is not geographic, but moral and spiritual. The sea serves as an archetype in, connection, in connotations of evil. Therefore, no trace of evil in any form will be present in the new creation. All that sounds like, oh, okay. Translate it. What did he say? I'll just walk you through what he just wrote. God originally created earth and heaven to be man's permanent home. The Bible does not say that. It does not say that. The reality is that God knows the end from the beginning, and he never called it man's permanent home, because he knew man would sin, and he knew that this earth and heaven would be destroyed. So why would he label it something that it's not? But let's move on. Sin and death entered the world and transformed the earth into a place of rebellion and alienation. Let me remind you of something. It was sinful mankind. And there was a curse on the earth. The earth did not sin. Man sinned. Is there a difference? Oh, yes. We do confess the earth is full of sin. We agree it's enemy-occupied territory. But their concept here is that the earth is in a place of rebellion. But God has been working in salvation history, in effect, to totally reverse this evil consequence to liberate earth and heaven from bondage to sin and corruption. And we have to tread very carefully with these words. Salvation was for man. 
not for the earth. There's a difference. Jesus didn't die for heaven. He didn't die for this planet. He died for people, right? There's a difference. If you're thinking, Pastor, boy, you're embellishing something here. Oh, wait till you hear of the things going on in theological circles. All kinds of crazy things about this earth being reconstituted and, and all these other things. There's, there's theories out there that are just astronomical to me. Anyway, he says John's emphasis on heaven and earth is not primary cosmological, but moral and spiritual. And he does it again in the paragraph I read again later on. He keeps saying moral and spiritual. He has a transition going on in his thinking. And the idea, eliminate the idea that heaven and earth is a geographical place. That's what he wants you to do. Set that all aside. That doesn't mean anything. And just make it a moral or a spiritual symbol because the sea is merely a symbol of evil. So what's the big deal? Once you start down this road of symbolic hermeneutics, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Symbolic hermeneutics, you're working with allegory and not literal hermeneutic. That's how you study God's word. Either you take it to be what God said it to, said, or you're going to translate it into whatever you want it to be. Symbolic and allegorical translations do that. Eventually, everything will become a symbol to you if you follow that. You want proof of it? I'll show you about a thousand years of it if you want in history. A thousand years of it. We called it the Dark Ages. We called it the Medieval Age. It's a time when the Catholic Church invented theologies and prevented the world from seeing the truth. And how did that happen? One of the church fathers, important guy in the church back then, suddenly announced that there was a new way to interpret the Bible. They called it allegory. And you just have to trust us with what it means. Because our idea must be right and yours you don't know. So just trust me, whatever I tell you, it's got to be true. And the problem, the problem with that historically, and apparently man never learns from history, does he? Because what are we destined to do if we don't? Repeat it. I think we're on the verge of the dark ages again spiritually. Personally, I think that's where it's going hermeneutically. Because we have people today who are really big into medieval theology. People really big into symbolism and allegory. And they're moving us away and away and away from literal interpretation. And what's the first step is just an inch. Let me show you something that I call the symptom to this hermeneutical illness. When a commentary cannot make a distinction between the present heaven and the present earth and the new heaven and the new earth, and they write it like they're the exact same place, you have stepped away from a literal hermeneutic. That's why I'm emphasizing this today. Because so many books written on heaven, I, I researched quite a few of them before I even wrote mine, and it frustrated me to this extent. So many books do not see a distinction between an old heaven and a new heaven. And so what they have used is the descriptions 
of chapter 21 and 22 to describe the present heavens when God says, nope, that's the new heavens. The fact is, we have very little information about the description of the present heavens. I'll give you just a clue. If we only took the book of Revelation, what we've studied so far, and said, what can we know about the present heavens right now? What can we know? You can start in chapter 1, and you find verses all the way through. And I'm just not going to give you all those verses. We'll use up all our time this morning. But if you started in chapter number 1, you could check this for me. There are several thrones, right? We read that. There are several thrones. Of course, there's a throne of the Father. We know that. We know there's a throne for the Son. We know that. We know that there are seven spirits before the throne. Though we may not understand that, we've been told that. We know that there are seven golden candlesticks before the thrones. We've read that too. We know that there's an emerald rainbow around the throne. And why he told us that, I'm not exactly sure, but it's intriguing to me. I'd like to see it. We are told that there are 24 elders sitting on thrones before the Lord. We are told that that throne, from that throne, comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And in front of that throne, we are told, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And, according to chapter 15, it adds that it's mixed with fire. And there we have a bunch of people standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And in the center and around the throne, there are four living creatures. You got a picture so far? We know there are numerous angels there. We know that there's a great number of saints that will be there. To be absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. We know a great multitude, which no one can count from every nation and tribe and tongue and peoples, will stand before the Lord and the the Lamb. And they'll be clothed in white robes and palm branches will be in their hands. And that's actually a description of tribulational saints. They're not there yet, but they're coming. We know there's a temple there. Yes, it's the true temple. Everything down here is just a pattern. Moses got a pattern from the Lord. Hebrews backs that up if you want to study the book of Hebrews on that point. Uh, But there is an altar of incense and there is the Ark of the Covenant. The true one. You don't have to go looking for the other one, all right? It's just a duplicate anyway. Everyone's worried. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? The real one's in heaven, but it's there. As a whole, that's about as descriptive as the book of Revelation gets on the present earth, or I'm sorry, present heaven. That's as descriptive as it gets. How's that do for you? Say, hmm, what was missing in that whole description? Mansions, streets of gold, pearly gates. Why are those not described? Because they're not there yet. There's a new heaven coming. That's its description. And yet, it doesn't stop us, does it? We start talking about mansions. King James, mansions. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may also be. In my Father's house are many Mansions. I love that word mansion, actually. It sounds like a cool place. The Greek word is abiding places. 
I had a little fun with that in my book because it's temporary. And I said, it's probably more like Motel 6. No, I don't mean to, to diminish anything, okay? I know whatever it is, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But it's not the place you're going to live forever. God has a forever place in store. And so you're there temporarily. Mansions, in our mindset, we think of wealthy, wealthy places, southern homes maybe, uh, some very fancy old southern homes, maybe something in California if it hasn't burnt to the ground by now. But Jesus talks of it as a temporary place. This present heaven exists that way. There's a song I loved as a kid, and we don't have it in our hymn book now, but I know many of you have sung it, The Mansion Over the Hilltop. And I said, oh, what a fun song that was. My, I'll tell you, I have to confess, my whole reason for learning the song, I learned to play it on a piano, and I learned to play it at such a pace you would not believe. My whole goal in life was to race the church pianist and see that I could beat her. And so I practiced that song day and night so I could just get it off. But that was my value in the song. It says, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver, a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And that bright land will never grow old. And someday yonder will never more wander but walk the streets. That are pure as gold. It goes on and on and on about describing this place. And do you know what they're describing? The new heaven. Not the present heaven. We do that with songs all the time. And I don't, I don't say don't sing the songs. I love the songs. I just remember in my mind, I'm not talking about this temporary place. I'm talking about our permanent place. Scripture does say that those who believe in him will not be disappointed. I said before, when you get to heaven, you're not going to say, oh, man. You're not. You're going to see it, and you're just amazed at what's in store. Eye has not seen, neither has ear heard. What has God prepared for us? It's going to be stunning. Stunning. Fact remains, we don't know a whole lot about the present heavens. We don't know a lot. But as we're going through chapter 21, he's telling us about the new heaven, the new earth. And you know what? We even have less to go on than what I've just shared with you. Because verse number 1 of chapter 21 is all that he does to describe the new heaven and new earth. And what it says is, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Done. That's not what we're talking about. What we have the description of is the new Jerusalem. It's the third place that will be there. He doesn't tell us what the new earth looks like, except that there's no more sea. He doesn't tell us what the new heaven looks like. He tells us what the new Jerusalem looks like. So, as we're working our way through this chapter, what's it all about? Let's take the tour today. You ready? This is fun. Verse number two. I saw a new city, New Jerusalem, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, just six days from now, we're going to have a wedding in my family. My son gets married. His bride has been at work. A lot of work. The whole goal is it's going to be picture perfect, right? That's the goal. Now, do you think God's description here of the New Jerusalem coming down is going to be anything less than spectacular? It's a bride, like a bride, coming down from heaven, ready, ready for her husband. The city, the city is different than the new heaven. It's different than the new earth. Scholars have tried to figure out, how is this going to work? Is a, is a, some think it's suspended in midair between the two places. Some say, no, it's going to be on the earth. Some people say, because of the verb tense, it's coming down. It's like it's always coming down. And I don't know what that looks like. Escalator or something, just constantly on the move. I don't know how that works. But I do know that it probably could sit on the earth just fine. Uh, I would assume so. But... Again, there are some things we just don't know. I cannot tell you if it's going to be suspended in three different locations, heaven, New Jerusalem, and earth, or not. I don't know. Where are you going to spend all your time? I don't know. It's going to be a lot to learn when we get there. That's okay. Verse number 9. Jump down. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, to me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Oh, this is so cool. This poor angel, he's been carrying around these bowls of wrath for so long, and he finally says, Now I get a good job. <laughs> Let me talk to you about this new Jerusalem. Let me show it to you. I could imagine he's pretty excited because the last job was not a pleasant one, was it? He says, come here and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And some people say, now that gets confusing. That last phrase, the wife of the lamb? Well, I can tell you this. I can't fully comprehend what he means. But this is where it gets very confusing in the commentaries again. Let me read it to you. One commentary said that this is not a description of an actual city. But it's a description of the church. The believers in the Lord, since it's called His Bride. Actually, I found several commentaries in my study that said that same thing. So, what they have is, follow the logic of this. This is great. They say, this is the old city of Jerusalem remodeled. But, it's not Jerusalem anymore. It's now the church. And it's you. Did you know you're an old city? No, you didn't, did you? You start to say, I don't know. I, I, what do you mean? It's the old city. No, it's remodeled. Now it's the church. What is this thing? Does that sound confusing? It's very confusing. Now, I wouldn't be surprised because once you start walking away from the literal hermeneutic, suddenly you're trying to find out who is this and why doesn't it match with what we normally think. And so you're saying it has to be symbolic. So this is not a real city, according to some. And if it's not a real city, the foundations are not real, the gates are not real, and the location is not real. Any, just use your imagination all the way through. 
That's what they've done. I don't like that. I think it's real. I think it's a real city. It's described with dimensions. It's described with walls. It's described with gates. It's described with foundations, even streets. Sounds like a city to me. If it's okay with you, I'm just going to stay that way. Just follow the literal as we go through this. I know it's going to be vastly different from anything we've ever known before. And if I cannot conceive all these words, that's okay. When I get there here, explain it. That's what faith is all about, by the way. You don't always know all the answers, do you? But you trust Him with it. You trust Him with it. Now, what is this city? It says it's being built. It's, it's coming down from heaven. It's, it's so beautiful a description. Come, let me show you the wife of the Lamb. The Lord has been either at work on this for some time now, Remember his promise, if I, I go and prepare a place for you? Some people say, well, that's what it is. He's going to prepare a place for him. And I'll come again and receive you unto myself, and there you are, there I am, there you, where you are, there I will also be. Uh, if that's the case, then is that the first heaven, or is that the second heaven? It might be the first heaven, because he promised it to them then, and to take them then... It probably would be that. But I can't, again, it's beyond me a little bit. But all I know is it's not built right now. Because there's a new heaven, a new earth that comes after the first one's destroyed. So whatever the case might be, John says this city is descending. And it looks just like a bride on her wedding day. And then he goes to describe it. And it sounds more like a city than a person. Verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like very costly stones, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. Most translators say it's like a diamond like you've never seen before in your life. The city had the brilliance of the most brilliant diamond you can imagine. It had great and high wall with 12 gates. And the gates, at each gate, there were 12, or at the gates, 12 angels, one angel at each gate, I assume. And the names were written on them, not on the angels, but on the gate. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were on the gates. Are these real walls or something symbolic? Why would the New Jerusalem need walls? There's a thought to ponder. Why are there twelve gates? If this is all about the church, why are the twelve tribes of Israel written on them? By the way, which of the 12 tribes of Israel is written on them? You say, well, that should make sense. Jacob had 12 sons. But that's 12 sons, right? And it says, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. The tribes are different than the sons. Do you know why? 
Because Joseph was one of the sons, but his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, became tribes. And when you put them in the equation, somebody has to go. Because then you have 13. And all the way through the Old Testament, who was it that got held back and used for a different purpose? Levi. But if you get into Ezekiel, who's left out of the list of the millennial tribes? Dan. Why? Well, because Dan was idolatrous. So he's left off that list. So I'm just asking you something here. If you want to work this problem through, I think it just stuns us a little bit, is who is not on the list if we're talking tribes and not sons? I guess you have to wait and see it. Walk around the the city once and look at the gates and figure out whose name is not up there. That would be interesting. It says there are three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you've got twelve foundations, and you've got the name of one of the twelve apostles on each of that list. Do you see a problem suddenly? We do have another problem, don't we? We said, okay, who is the twelfth apostle? Is it Judas? Let's take a vote. Nah, it wouldn't be Judas. Acts chapter 1, verse 26, there was a man selected to the position whose name was Matthias. You're pretty good this morning. Matthias was appointed to be the 12th apostle. And then what do you find when you get to Romans and Corinthians and all those other books? The apostle Paul. So whose name is on the 12th stone? You have to wait and see. The fact is, the Bible doesn't say. I'm not going to speculate. Again, that's another one of those things where you say, well, I'll just have to wait and see. Okay. So we know it's a fact. We just don't know what the details are. One spoke to me. He had a golden measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city is laid out as a square. That helps. The length is as great as the width. That helps. He measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles was the length of one wall. And its length and width and height are equal. 1,500 miles. If you want to start here in Hillsdale and go to New York City, that's about the distance of a wall. It would take you 21 hours and 15 minutes in light traffic, Google tells me. 1,500 miles. In total, you guys who do math like this, two and a quarter million square miles in the city. You want to know the acres? You guys would love this. Talk about a busy day. One and a half billion acres of ground. Enough room for a couple of crops. (laughs) One and a half billion acres. Imagine these numbers. Oh, and there's walls. There is one wall in particular described here, 72 yards high. That's three quarters of a football field laid on its end. 
216 feet. You're somewhere close to a 19-story building for a wall. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, I lived in Culberson Hall, which was the tallest building they had there, and it was 19 stories. And I thought that was pretty neat. We went out on the roof once just to take a look, walked over to the edge and take a... I'm never doing it again. <laughs> just talking to you right now, I just broke into a sweat. It's like, ooh, that, that is pretty impressive, even 19 stories up. That's the height of the wall. Verse 17 says so. He measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which, by the way, the angels used too. That's kind of interesting. What has John just showed you? He shows you the dimension of a city that really is mind-staggering, isn't it? Anything this large, hardly a refurbished old city. The old Jerusalem would fit in a closet in this city, in comparison. As for its building material... It's not brown or gray stone cut from a quarry. Like if you go to Jerusalem, it was pretty much brownish color, wasn't it? That's the pictures I've seen. These, these walls, are made of jasper. It was in a city of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city walls were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth or jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Sound pretty to you? Very impressive. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gate was a single pearl. One pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I'm trying to imagine what I'm reading here. The walls are 72 yards high, and the pearl gates, how big must they be? To match a wall that size? I don't know. Are they 20 feet instead of 10 feet? It doesn't give us descriptions of height. I do know this, that if it takes a natural pearl to come from an oyster, my imagination just went wild here. (laughs) How big are the oysters? The text says each gate is a single pearl. The street of the city. It says street, not streets. It's singular. I checked that on purpose to say, was our English different than the Greek? Nope. It says street. One street. Pure gold. Transparent like glass. And I could only guess that it must be 1,500 miles long. I'm having a little bit of fun, I know. For those of you who think that the number 12 has to be symbolic for something, because there's 12 apostles, 12 tribes, maybe the colors of the foundation has to be symbolic for something. The gates have to be symbolic for something. The walls have to be symbolic for something. The, the street has to be symbolic for something. The pearls 
Are all those meant to mean something other than what we just literally read? The Bible never tells us, does it? It never tells us that. I have enough trouble trying to imagine the massive size of this beauty and the place that we're talking about here without trying to add symbolism to it. Just the literal is impressive as can be. I will show you, though, what makes it the most beautiful. Verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Folks, this is what makes it so exciting to me. We're going to live where God is. We're going to go live with Him in this place. As we read earlier in verse number 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. I've heard many times over the years for those who long for heaven. They sometimes they talk about longing to see a child that's gone before, or a parent, or a spouse. We all know that, don't we? We all know that understanding. Some long to heaven because there's a relief from a difficult time they've had down here, or an illness, or a handicap, and they said, boy, that would be great. Some people long for heaven because of a hard life due to persecution. And they talk about heaven as, wow, that's going to be great when I'm no longer persecuted. I once heard a story about a missionary who had been kidnapped by a group of violent men. After a while, the leader of the men decided to execute the hostages. And so it was given to one man the responsibility of taking this missionary over the hill and and kill him. And in a little while... The man came back with the missionary still with him. And, of course, his leader says, why didn't you kill him? He says, well, as we were walking, he was telling me about where he was going to go. And he says, I thought that killing him was doing him a favor. (laughs) So I figured I'd let him live here and suffer a little longer. We talk about heaven as a place we just can't wait to be. I know that. We long for things like this. But let me ask something to your own heart today. Can I? What are you longing for? Look at verse 3 again. Just look at those words. And I'm going to ask you once more. 21 verse 3. What are you longing for? What are you longing for? Is it that you are going to go and dwell with God forever? I only ask that. So you can talk about that in your own heart. We'll talk about this more in weeks to come. But I won't quit today without saying something about where you are right now. The fact is, you do not get to go to be with the Father if you've never believed in the Son. The fact is that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. 
Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Jesus is the one who shed his blood for you so that you can be forgiven. Jesus Christ is the one who rose again so that you could have new life in him. You cannot have heaven. You cannot have a new heaven. You cannot have a new earth. You can't even have a new Jerusalem without Jesus. You cannot. I'm not asking you to believe in heaven today. I'm asking you to put your faith in Jesus. Only, he's the only Savior, folks. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one. And I ask you, what is the longing of your heart right now? What is the longing of your heart? People, you ask them on the street, do they believe in heaven? How many of them will say yes? A great number of them. How many of them say, I want to go there? A great number of them. What is it that they really want? Some peaceful place to lay down, to be left alone. A quiet place where I'm free from illnesses, where I'm free from troubles, where I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to pay bills anymore. Ask them. They start this, I won't do this, I won't do that, I won't do this. And then ask them, but what will you do? Scripture says there's one place to go. If you're going to heaven, you have to go through Jesus Christ. Will you believe in him? That's the one thing we can do, is believe in him. Because nothing else counts. Nothing else counts. That's why I ask you for the longing of your heart this morning. Do you desire, above everything else, to dwell with God eternally? There's only one Savior that makes that possible. Jesus Christ himself. If you need a Savior, you can settle that this morning. Right now, you can settle that this morning. And if the longing of your heart is for anything but the Lord, think about that right now. There are many distractions in this world right now, but believer, where are your eyes? Colossians makes this point in chapter 3, and I love the way Paul wrote this as he expressed himself in the first four verses there. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, think of that phrase, Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with Him in glory. We have a lot more to talk about this new Jerusalem. We're going to continue that in the weeks to come. But as I read through this and, and just enjoyed the fantastic words and tried to imagine them, and yet stay literal to the text without my imagination going too wild. I stopped on that verse, and God will dwell with them. And I said, what is it that I was longing for? Was it walls? Was it golden streets? Was it a gate made out of pearl? Am I looking for a mansion? Am I looking for a harp and a crown? Is my heart set on those things and not on my Lord? 
Not on my Lord. That's what crossed my mind as I was studying this this week. Thinking, wow, Lord, it's such a beautiful place. Such a gorgeous, wonderful place. And I do long to see it. But I long to see you more. Test your heart, would you? Check your heart this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we just simply bow before you, none of this would happen unless you made it. None of this. Your word is spoken in what we call the indicative mood, which is reality. You don't talk in just mere speculation or wild imagination. You tell us what is, what is, and what is to come. For that we can trust you, even though it's beyond our comprehension. We don't have to make this up to be something other than what it says. And still it's bigger than our minds. But Lord, may it not be the primary focus of our thoughts. This is a beautiful place, yes. But what is most glorious is that we'll be with you. And that is the promise you've made to us. Where you are, there we will also be. And I pray, Lord, that if our thinking is any other way, if we've anchored our hope to a golden street or a pearly gate or some other thing and not on Jesus, I pray that you show us that in our hearts today. Because we need to have an appetite for you, a desire for you, above all and everything else. We long to dwell with you. Work in our hearts today, we pray, and help us to comprehend more than just what's on this page, but our relationship with you most of all. And if there is somebody here today who doesn't know the Lord, only you can save them, Lord. I pray that your word will penetrate their heart and show them their need for Christ, and show them Christ, that they may put their need in him, trust him as their Savior. And have this eternal life that's promised. Lord, there might be some among us today who have that very need. Draw them to yourself, we pray, even now. And thank you for the fact you've done it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.